We are in the midst of a journey through the Gospel of John. I guarantee you a journey that is going to frustrate a good handful of you this morning. Uh, we are following a thread through uh, the, the narrative, uh, the, this Gospel of, of John. And this thread, we, are going, we miss a lot. But we also are going to capture a lot. But we're going to miss a lot. So my encouragement to you is um, it is okay to notice what we don't talk about, but notice what we do and, and, and maybe see uh, the intent behind it and what, what the Holy Spirit might be speaking to us collectively as the vineyard. So uh, the, the gospel so far has revealed the glory of God by Jesus moving towards us. We saw that in, in response to John the Baptist's uh, disciples that, that left John and went to Jesus, and on that road, Jesus turns and meets them. We also saw the glory of God um, as, as Jesus sees beyond the mask of pride and sarcasm and arrogance of Nathaniel and sees that in his heart, through his prayers, through his communication with God, that this is actually a man of integrity. He sees beyond that mask. And also, we see the glory manifest in a true desire to live life with us. Now, we also see in the midst of this, and we also know from our own culture, that uh, rituals have been created from the beginning of time. Uh, rituals that, that, that are created to purify us, to make us worthy of God. All of these things fall short. All mode and mechanism that we create to make ourselves acceptable to God cannot do the job. It doesn't bring us peace. It doesn't bring us wholeness, and it doesn't bring us life. But man, we try hard. The glory of God is felt with an overflow of grace that comes from his provision of the ultimate sacrifice. We saw that with the, the miracle at the wedding in Cana. This is a God that we're invited to experience, and we're going to continue that journey today. There are two interactions that we're going to see in John, in one in John chapter 3 and another in John chapter 4. They show Jesus presenting his glory. And, and remember that we're working on that definition as we go through this, that this is the weighty, felt presence of God. Also, God's self-expression, the way that God chooses to express himself to his creation. The two people that we are, are going to examine today are two people that are a lot like me. This really, the, the similarity between myself and those two people, for me, the, it, it makes this part of the gospel land. It lands hard. It lands hard because what I see here is that the creator of the universe becomes tangible, accessible, and experienced to someone like me. Nicodemus, who we're going to meet here in chapter 3, is an apt rep representation of many of us because he wants to know God, but he struggles to understand God. Nicodemus will question Jesus, but he does it from an earthly perspective. He does it from a perspective that tries to rationalize the mysteries of God and the plan of God by fitting them into a human paradigm. And what he finds is that, that, that God cannot be fit into a paradigm. He can't be fit into a box. And because he doesn't fit into this box, it frustrates the crap out of Nicodemus. 
And I see reflections of myself in that. We're also going to see the woman at the well in chapter 4, like many of us, like me, because she is so broken, she's so alone, that every decision she makes is about survival, about doing what it takes to be alive another day. Everything about her existence is so broken that she is just trying to exist. She is seeking salvation, but the short-term salvation of survival, just living another day. She is so far separated from the love of God that something beyond day-to-day survival is, is a foreign concept. It doesn't even enter her paradigm. If you can identify with either of those, then the reality of Jesus as the self-expression of God becomes clear. So first, Nicodemus. Join me in, uh, in John chapter 2, 32. Because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust in him. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. That's quite a statement. No one needed to tell him about human nature, for he knew what was in each person's heart. That's the preamble to the the guy that we're about to meet. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God sent you to teach us. Your, Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. What do you mean? exclaimed Nicodemus. How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? This is so Jesus being Jesus. Nicodemus sought after Jesus because of the glory that he is, that's revealed through the miracles that he's heard about and seen in Jesus' time in Jerusalem. He's seeking because he recognizes something about Jesus, something about what Jesus does and how he does it. It isn't the same religious expression that, it, that he's used to. And, and Nicodemus is well-versed in religious experience and, and expression. He's a Pharisee. He's in a select group, never more than 6,000 at a time in history. These Pharisees are known in Hebrew Chaburah is a brotherhood. It is a brotherhood. They enter this brotherhood to be a Pharisee. They enter this brotherhood by taking a vow in front of three other Pharisees. They vow, and and remember, vows are, are, are serious, a little bit different than our culture. They take a vow that they will live their life observing every detail of scribal law. That I, I just to, to think to, to peel that back, this is almost an impossibility from the beginning. But but what is scribal law? Scribal law is an interpretation of the Torah, the first five books that we have in, in the Old Testament, that has evolved. The, the the interpretation has evolved over centuries that tell people what they've got to do to be in right relationship with God. So this is like the how-to to do all the stuff they find in the Torah. An example of this would be, you know, and this is the Pharisees are gatekeepers of religion. They're also gatekeepers of experiencing God because they tell you how to do it. So the, the question of, of, well, 
we can't work on the Sabbath. Scribal law enters that reality by saying, well, this is actually what work is on the Sabbath. Carrying something is work, but how much is work? Where's that line between, well, that's not work and this is work? And so they were able to figure out uh, to their mind what actually you could carry and not be working on the Sabbath. So they made ritual and rules that would actually, this is the expression of following the law. And, and the, the Sabbath and keeping the Sabbath is one example. This permeated life in, in Jerusalem and, and in the Jewish culture, that this, this uh, attempt to live out the, the ritual of experiencing God was done through, through scribal law. And these were the keepers of scribal law. The Pharisee, Nicodemus, had seen the miraculous and was struggling to align what he saw Jesus doing, what he heard that Jesus had done, with what he thought he knew about following God and about living a righteous life. And remember, when we talk about righteousness, we're not talking about behavior, we're talking about relationship. Righteousness simply meaning right-relatedness. So this Pharisee had seen things that don't align with how he experiences God, and also it doesn't align with how he gatekeeps others' experience of God. What we see here uh, start to develop, though, as he comes to, uh, to Jesus at, at night, and I'll just say one thing about, about that. There's a lot of discussion about why did he come at night. Well, maybe he was an assassin, and maybe he was just trying to stay hidden. I think he came, tonight, came at night because that's when his, his work was done. Uh, but anyway, I don't think that there's anything nefarious that we need to read into to this, but, but you could, I suppose, if you, if you want to. Uh, but what we could see from the, this interaction is a form, a, a structure for, for how the glory of God is revealed in, in these intimate settings, in these one-on-one settings that we get to be privy to centuries later. I mean, the, the cool thing is, like, we're talking about, about an historical event. Like, this, actually, this conversation really happened between two living people. What we see in this structure is that, that the one seeking Jesus makes a statement. When Nicodemus made a statement. And then Jesus answers that statement with a response that makes little sense and doesn't actually have anything to do with what was brought to him. And then it's misunderstood by the seeker. And then the seeker asks a clarifying, a clarifying question, like sort of a holy, um, what? Cow. cow. A holy cow. <laughs> See, that's the kind of thing that, that makes me hungry during sermons because now I'm thinking of, of uh, anyway, I need to quit thinking about hamburgers, especially because, I don't know about y'all, but um, made it to Chick-fil-A twice since it opened on Thursday, so praise God for that. Um, back to Nicodemus, though. Before this gets out of hand, um, we see the, the seeker ask that, that um, what are you talking about question, and then Jesus provides an even more difficult to understand answer and a teaching that reveals the intentions of the living God. Now, as, as Jesus unpacks the answer that he gives, it makes more sense to us. 
But if you think about what he's doing here, this is not a lot different than what he did for Nathaniel. See, Nathaniel is, is coming towards Jesus, and he's got this mask, like the, the mask of pride and sarcasm. Jesus sees past it to his heart and, and deals with the heart. What Jesus sees in this interaction with Nicodemus is, is actually the issue. Nicodemus is struggling with religion. He's struggling with the ritual. He's struggling with the emptiness of ritual, and he's trying to figure out if this is real, why doesn't it feel real? If this is real, how is any of the things that you're doing possible? Nicodemus comes to Jesus because of the signs and wonders, but Jesus tells him that those miracles are not what's really important. Back into into our passage today, verse 5, Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind, but can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. How are these things possible, Nicodemus asked. Now, in our structure, as we're going through this, we're we're in this place of of now asking another clarifying question. And and this is where the glory of God, that that, that weighty, felt presence is revealed to Nicodemus, but also through Nicodemus as, as an example of how God deals with us, his creation, his children. The lesson is important, and, and there's revealed glory in the wisdom, but the man that had thought that he had life figured out, this man Nicodemus, that, that was one of the 6,000 that, that, that gate kept for, for God, He thought he knew how the world worked, but he saw how far off he was, and Jesus meets him in that place with glory. Now, the fault that Jesus is about to point out is that Nicodemus has been operating with an information-only faith, a belief driven by what he could learn, a belief driven with a void of experience, a void of the application of the power of God. Nicodemus is truly searching, but he can't make the mental transition, the paradigm shift, because he's stuck in what he thinks that he knows. And so Jesus replies, verse 10, you are a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things. I assure you, We tell you what we know and have seen, yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven in return, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him have eternal life. Man, there is so much going on in that passage. So much that we can unpack 
from the teaching that Jesus is giving, but the thread of his interaction that links the miracles and the events uh, from the wedding at Cana through the temple in chapter 2, all are linked to a reality that separation from God is death, and there is a way that we can end the separation. Jesus is referring to a story that Nicodemus would understand. He's referring to a story found in Numbers chapter 21, where the Israelites, after they had been rescued from slavery, are cursing God for the manner in which he chose to save them from slavery. Based on on their their separation from God, from their resistance to God, their angst towards God, their, their actions towards God, snakes are released Venomous snakes are released as as a judgment, as an example of the death that comes from separation from God. To provide healing for the people, God instructs Moses to put a bronze snake on a pole and lift it up for the people to see. All that looked up at the pole, everyone who, who who would raise their head and look at the pole, a sign of desiring to be in right relationship with God, all of those that looked upon the pole were healed. Now, the power to heal wasn't in the ritual of looking up. The power to heal is not in the hurdle that we must clear. The power to heal isn't the manner or behavior that makes someone more tangible or plausible to a group, the power to heal comes from the Spirit, and it flows through those who truly believe that God is who He says that He is, does what He says that He does, and chooses to submit His life to the will of God. Verse 16. If we think about that story from Numbers 21 as the beginning of of what could be the most widely known verse in Scripture, it wasn't the ritual that brought salvation. For this is how God loved the world. He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in in God's one and only son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world But people love the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear that their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. Now, wrapped in this teaching is the theme of light and what light will accomplish, but also an indication of how some will react and respond to that light. Some are going to feel the weighty presence of God and resist it. They're going to stay separated from God. 
separated to God to the point of death. Others will allow the light to lead them, lead them to faith. And that faith leads to a promise that God will provide the sacrifice, the one mechanism required to be in relationship with him. For Nicodemus, we see this, this interaction with God. A seeker was met on the road. In the same way those first disciples were met on the road, Nicodemus is met. He saw and heard of the glory, and he went out to find it. But he had questions. He had real questions about how this worked. He had real questions about how real this could be. He had questions that had to be answered. Questions that had to be reconciled for him to step from seeker to finder. What he found was a paradigm-shattering glory. The presence of God in his midst, giving him the only answer that he would ever need. Ritual and religion might change behavior, but it doesn't change what we live for. Living for self, living for survival, only guarantees death. Allowing Jesus to save us through his self-sacrifice is the only pathway to life. All roads do not lead to God. A universal approach to salvation is actually a self-indulgent journey to death. Nicodemus found that, that taking these questions to the living God resulted in a display of glory. And he gives us an example. Glory is revealed through truth, but also through the compassion of a response. A God that loves us enough to actually know the questions that we have in our heart and meet us by providing those answers. Glory is revealed. God is approachable, which reflects that he can be experienced. Moving from information to application, we see that he answers us and he meets us when we question. And so the application piece is we get to ask God. The revelation of glory in the interaction of Nicodemus leads us to the next revelation of glory that takes reality and applies it to worthiness. If worthiness has been a struggle for you, what I hope when we think about the information versus application, my hope is that you see yourself in the story we're about to go through together. This story, this, this revelation of glory comes by way of a woman Jesus meets at a well in the heat of the midday sun. If you've ever been close to the equator, you know that the heat of the midday sun actually is heat. We in Montana, it gets hot. There's also heat. She's coming to get water in the heat of the day. This well, it's, it's far from town. Um, it's, she's doing this in a time of the day where you would do as little as possible. This late morning through the afternoon, uh, the, the, the reason that she's doing this is, is she is isolating. She is looking to avoid other women. She's looking to avoid community. She's getting water when community outcasts go to get water. Her brokenness has changed her behavior. 
She's isolating. Let me say that again. Her brokenness has changed her behavior. She's isolating. John 4, verse 1. Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John. Though John himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had gone He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat warily beside the well about noontime. Soon, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please, give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Think of the form that Jesus uses in these encounters. Jesus replied, if you only knew the the gift God has, has for you, who you are speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said. This well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water and I'll never be thirsty again. I won't have to come here to get water. Let me isolate further. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. You're not even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshiped? Nice deflection. But Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, The time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you are worshiping the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it is here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him in that way, for God is spirit, So those who worship him must worship in spirit and in the truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming. The one who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. In other words, I don't need to listen to you anymore. Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Now, if you've ever lived in a small town, you know how this works. It's kind of funny that we call Billings a city, right? See, the town knew her reputation. Not only is she shacking up with some dude in town, but this follows five previous relationships. You think about culture, you think about gossip. 
culture and gossip would call this woman promiscuous or something much more profane. Jesus sees beyond the behavior of this woman and into the brokenness that causes it. He sees a girl desperate to be cared for, desperate to be secure, and especially at this time in history, security is tied to marriage. A woman without a husband would be poor, defenseless, and have a low probability of survival without being able to sell her body in some capacity. This girl is scared. She's afraid of being alone. She's insecure. And she answers these fears by using her body to try and stay safe. This woman is not a whore. She's terrified. She's also deeply ashamed. Just like when we know that we are outside of the boundaries of, of what is right, and it, 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 you know, we're morally, ethically, um, just you think about in terms of, of sometimes the smaller communities that we're in, um, you know, at, at work or school, when we are outside of the norms, we can feel it because of the way people treat us. We know when we are on the outside of the norm. She knew that she was outside of the boundaries of what is right. She could feel it, and because she could feel that tension, she isolated. This is not an uncommon response to feeling like we are outside of the bounds that we are supposed to be in. We tend to isolate and hide. This is where we begin to take stock of how the scripture reflects an experience that we might know. Glory is about to come against this issue. But there's some deeper things here too that, that I think Jesus is attempting to heal. Because she calls Jacob her ancestor. Jacob is, is a patriarch a founding father of the nation of Israel. In fact, he's the one that actually earned the name Israel because he wrestled with God. Uh, this land where this well is, it also makes an interesting part of the story as, as we're kind of see it, seeing it unfold today. In Genesis chapter, 20, chapter 33, uh, verse 18 through 20, we see this. Jacob arrived safely at the town of Shechem in the land of Canaan. There he set up camp outside the town. Jacob brought the plot, bought the plot of land where he camped from the family of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of silver. And there he built an altar and named it El Elohi Israel. God, God of Israel is the name of this land. Now, after he did this, after this, this and, and just in the, the, if you're familiar with the narrative of Scripture, this is after he had an encounter with Esau, who he, he tricked into, like he, he stole from, uh, he is uh, traveling. He finds himself in, in this place. He buys this place. He builds an altar. He's got this well. This is Jacob's property. After all of this, a prince of Shechem, uh, a son of, of Hamor, sees one of Jacob's daughters. And Jacob's daughter uh, named Dinah. This is uh, found in Genesis 33. Uh, he he's overtaken, this, this son of Shechem is overtaken by lust when he sees Dinah. And so he, he takes her and, and rapes her. And after raping her, he decides, you know, I kind of want to have her. And so he goes to his, his father, Hamor, 
and says, hey, um, I want her as a wife. This, this girl that I just uh, kidnapped and raped, uh, go talk to her dad and, and let him know that I want to marry her. And so Hamor goes to Jacob with a pretty uncomfortable conversation. So my son just raped your daughter. He wants to marry her. How do we make this work? The land is polluted with this. The land near this well and the family line that extends from the woman that Jesus is talking to in this story is polluted with sexual assault and abuse. Now, Dinah's brothers were not on board with the plan that Jacob made, and so they made up their own plan. It's a plan of revenge that's actually pretty epic. You know, I tell you often that, man, Hollywood does not have the creativity to, to make stories like the living God. This is what Jacob's brothers do. They, they pretend to agree to a wedding, and, and they, they point out, though, that there's some religious differences that need to be bridged. There's some gaps here that we've got to find a, a, a way across for this to work. So for the marriage to actually be something that we can sanction, all the men in Shechem need to be circumcised. So they agree, okay, we're, we're all going to get sick. Now imagine if you're just some dude that lives in Shechem and you find out that you have to do this because of what that guy did, I wouldn't be pleased by this. But just with the culture, like they all, they line up for their circumcision. They all agree. They're all, I'm just thinking of the assembly line. That's probably too far. But however this worked out, it's an important part of the story. So so they're, they're all operated on, and, and while they're weak from blood loss, and they're still tender, Jacob's sons attack the city, and they kill everyone. So that event adds to the reality that Jacob, and this line that comes from Jacob, is, is, a, line, uh, is a life lived of deceit and dishonesty and attempts to match deceit and dishonesty with more deceit and dishonesty. In the end, though, Jacob realizes the grace of God. And we also see in Genesis 48, and, we, and, and this was already referenced in, in our passage in, in John, the land and the well would be given to Joseph, who another, a son of Jacob, another man that found himself enslaved enslaved by his own pride and his own dishonor, but a man that would discover the grace of God. This is the ancestral line of the woman that Jesus meets, the land that contained the well, and the, the ancestral line that comes from that land is, is a line that knew selfishness. They knew abuse. They knew dishonesty. They knew deceit. They knew separation from God. They knew separation from God due to pursuing self over salvation. The woman at the well represents all of those that have lost sight of what God, what is offered by God, and has devolved into competitive survival. But then glory. Like her ancestor, she's about to discover grace. Jesus didn't call her out for her behavior. He led her to self-awareness. 
See, what we see here is that sin is relational. It's not behavioral. It leads to behaviors that demonstrate sin in our hearts, but sin is about replacing God as the center of our order. The woman at the well replaced God with relationships in order to be secure. Her security came from men rather than from God. This is the well that she's been drinking from. Drinking from this well of, of, of male companionship, does she get security? Kind of. Are her needs met? Ish. But to maintain her existence, she has to keep going back to that well again and again and again. And that which is sustaining her life is actually taking her life as she gets further and further away from community, further and further away. And the root of brokenness goes deeper and deeper, choking her ability to see herself as a beloved of God. So what does Jesus do about that? He offers her glory. He offers her the, the weighty, felt presence of the living God. Living water. This isn't just a drink. It's a spring that constantly is refilled. The water from Jacob's well and all of the things in our own lives that, that would be representative of the water of Jacob's well will satisfy thirst for a while. But that satisfaction never remains. It actually creates more thirst. The human needs for love, food, sex, money, security, approval, when that's met, it doesn't give complete satisfaction. Attempts to find full satisfaction will lead only to disappointment and despair. But the water of glory, the water Jesus gives covers need and, and desire because it provides what brokenness truly longs for. The presence of the Father offering grace, forgiveness, and rescue. This water becomes more than a drink as we accept our position as a child of God, as his beloved, because God's presence becomes a perpetual spring within us, giving us eternal life. The inner spring con contrasts with the water from the well, which required hard work to, to, to acquire. As Nicodemus learned in John 3, this spring is, is reality for those that are born anew in the Spirit. Those that come to Jesus broken and accept the gift of living water. Brokenness leads to the thirst that cannot be quenched. As we turn back to worship this morning, Jesus, the living water, trans transforms us out of brokenness so we will never thirst again. The weighty, felt presence of God comes to his creation and it offers life. He meets those that seek. He sees beyond our masks. He sees through our brokenness and he offers us the one thing that can save his life.
Amen.